Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Breaking news from earlier today, at least four dead after a massive explosion destroyed a hotel in Havana, Cuba. Police and fire rescuers are combing through rubble for survivors after an explosion late Friday morning destroyed a hotel in Havana, killing at least four people. For further insight into this and other issues, let's start as we do every Friday with our first guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and Latin America. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So a gas leak is thought to be the cause of the explosion at Hotel Saratoga, according to the Cuban presidential office, who said in a tweet that more details would follow. Witnesses described a massive blast which appeared to destroy buses and cars outside the hotel. Uh, your thoughts, Caleb Moppin? Sure. Well, you know, Cuba has been subject to a huge amount of sabotage. Um, there have been a number of instances where anti, anti-Cuba, anti-communist activists based in Miami have directly bombed hotels, bombed airplanes. There was Luis Posada Carriles, uh, who was the, um, you know, this, this guy who was responsible for the blowing up of an airplane that killed, I believe, 73 people. And the USA held him and, you know, and refused to turn him over to Cuban officials for to be tried, um, even though he, he killed, you know, a large number of Cubans. So, you know, there is direct attack. But on top of that, um, if this was indeed just a gas leak, which is uh, what, what the reports seem to be indicating at the moment, we'll find out more as the investigations go on. If it was just a gas leak, um, that itself is the result of the sabotage, because Cuba uh, doesn't have the ability to import the technology that they need, the sanctions on Cuba. Um, make it very difficult for their infrastructure uh, to to function because they they cannot purchase parts from all kinds of companies. Basically, the way the sanctions on Cuba work is if you do business with them, you can't do business with the United States. Um, so if they're going to import you know parts for their natural gas, for their you know for the the engines, for the heating you know on on their buildings, they're going to have to do it from very very obscure companies that don't have anything to do with the United States. So. You know, the infrastructure and the, you know, power grids and other things in Cuba are heavily affected by U.S. sanctions. So even if it's not as is not some kind of bombing or attack by anti-Cuban activists, um, it could still be the result of, of the sabotage economically and the economic warfare that Cuba faces at the hands of the United States. You know, um, I know we hadn't discussed this, but this is well, since we're talking about Cuba, there's an article in Havana Times. On Thursday, Cuba thanked the Russian government of Vladimir Putin for a donation of 19,526 tons of wheat, which reached the island a month late due to Western sanctions. They go on to say the Russian ambassador to Cuba said this important humanitarian cargo had problems because the ship owner could not be paid due to the sudden disconnection of several Russian banks from SWIFT international payment system. Your thoughts on that, Caleb? Well, again, I mean, the United States is waging an all-out war against the alternative economy that's developing in the world. That includes the Belt and Road Initiative from China. Uh, that includes uh, the Eurasian Economic Union led by Russia. That includes the BRICS. That includes the Bolivarian Alternative for Latin America. 
Um, and, you know, this op, this war in Ukraine has given the United States a big opportunity to move ahead with its efforts to crush the emerging competition around the world economically. And uh, this has been an effect of that. The fact that, uh, that, that Russia has made a point of sending food to Cuba is really important because food shortages are on the horizon as a result of the war in Ukraine. Russia will have trouble exporting grain in a lot of different places. Ukraine's harvest, Ukraine is a major wheat and grain producer, uh, and their harvest is going to be about 50% of what it normally is because of a war going on in the country. Uh, on top of that, Russian fertilizer is not going to be exported, and we're going to have a, a global a global crisis on the food markets, and the price of food is going to go through the roof, and there's going to be food shortages. They're already having food shortages in Nigeria and other African countries, and with, with the Russian fertilizer not going out because of the sanctions, et cetera, it's going to get much worse. So it's, it's good that, that Russia was able to get that food to Cuba before you know the, the problem set in. Um, and it's a shame that the United States is making it more difficult for basic, you know, transactions like this to happen. Lula criticizes world leaders for not doing enough to help create peace in Ukraine. Quote, if you want peace, you have to have patience. I think dialogue only works when it's taken seriously. That's Lula uh, da Silva, who's running for president of uh, Brazil. I'm I'm going to connect two dots here. The Ukrainian news outlet Ukrainska Pravda reported yesterday that British Prime Minister Boris Johnson used his surprise visit to Kiev last month to pressure President Zelensky to cut off peace negotiations with Russia, even after the two sides appeared to have made uh, tenuous progress toward a settlement to end the war. Your thoughts... Caleb Moppin. Well, that makes perfect sense uh, because this war uh, has made huge, huge amounts of money for big oil companies like the British Petroleum Company that's based in Britain. It's made huge amounts of money uh, for big banks and monopolies and for the military industrial complex, etc. And uh, it seems like the goal of the United States and of Britain in Ukraine is to keep this war going as long as possible, to keep those oil prices and natural gas prices high, uh, to keep selling those weapons, uh, you know, to keep kind of, you know, you know, ro- rolling their competitors under, you know, kind of demolishing the, the lower level capitalists in, in the Western countries uh, that are the kind of the base of this new right uh, populist opposition, uh, to secure the position of ultra monopolies like Walmart and Amazon. Uh, and the big oil companies, while at the same time, uh, at the same time that they do that, um, you know, moving against Russia and helping isolate Russia and using this war to isolate Russia, to push Russia off the international markets, uh, to, you know, to make Russia much less able to exist on the global market. Uh, So this war is really, really important uh, for Western leaders. And the sad thing is that if they really cared about Ukrainians, I mean, there's all this talk about Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. If they really cared about Ukrainians, they would be wanting to negotiate peace as soon as possible. But they're not doing that. We now have evidence, uh, as you just read there, that the British prime minister was basically trying to stop a peace settlement from happening. He wanted Ukrainians to keep dying. And that's what some of us, you know, that are familiar with what's actually going on there have been saying from the beginning. Like, they want this war to keep going as long as possible to secure their monopolies, to secure their profits, and they don't really care about the Ukrainian people. And all of the bombastic statements they're making, uh, this, is just, uh, this is just deception. This is just, uh, this is just you know, hand-wringing 
But the reality is uh, they see this war as a great opportunity to make profits and beat down one of their competitors, Russia. Rachel Marsden writes, is the West at war with disinformation or dissent? When U.S. President Joe Biden announced on April 27th that a new disinformation governance board would serve the DHS, it was just the latest turn of the screw on freedom. This time it's an affront to citizens' right to avert diversity of information. You know, I, I actually did a tweet the other day, and in it I said, breaking news. Biden's new disinformation government finds that over a million Iraqis and hundreds of thousands of Libyans died from the deliberate spread of disinformation. I don't think they're going to be looking into that one. Caleb, your thoughts on what's happening with the uh, really uh, the war on dissent? Yeah, well, what's particularly interesting is that this uh, this disinformation governance board is not only being criticized by people like us that are anti-imperialists uh, that are, you know, are seeing you know, anyone who's critical of the narrative around Ukraine be shut down and silenced. I mean, it would make sense for people like us to speak up against it, right? We see this as the U.S. government, you know, demanding that their viewpoint be the only one tolerated. Uh, but we're seeing a number of people on the Republican and conservative side of the fence. Uh, they're also crying foul. And I think the reason that they're crying foul is they see this not as just a defense of the U.S. political establishment from opposition, from anti-imperialism or whatever, they see this as a partisan move. Uh, they see this as an attempt on the part of the government to shut down people that might be sympathizers of Donald Trump or people that might be critical of the lockdowns or the COVID policies. And they see this as, as kind of bonapartist maneuvering on the part of, of the faction uh, within the power structure that is aligned with Biden and against uh, people like Elon Musk. So it's particularly interesting to see how this is playing out. But yes, I mean, this is, this is an attempt to control the dialogue. Um, you have to wonder how much of it is real, how much of it is not, you know, not just smoke and mirrors. Uh, this Nina Jankowitz, uh, you know, and her silly videos and her, you know, musical theater experience. You know, this is an actress, basically. This is somebody who wishes they were on Broadway, but instead ended up in Washington, D.C. Um, so, I mean, if she's really going to be doing stuff to, to fight disinformation, what do they really plan to do? If anything, this looks a, a little bit like, uh, like theater in another sense of the term. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, we will have to see. The implication is there's a ring of the government uh, that is going to try and regulate and control uh, what, you know, what information is out there and shut down and counter dissident voices. And to some degree or other, the government has always been doing that. I mean, that's a big part of what, you know, the CIA has done for years with Project Mockingbird. That's a big part of what the intelligence apparatus has done for a long time. Um, but the question is, uh, when you have it really being blatantly done by the Department of Homeland Security, which is a law enforcement agency, uh, you know, the implications are a little bit more extreme. And to that point, uh, with the with this coming out of Department of Homeland Security, there are fears that uh, accusations of terrorism or being related to terror uh, could come from their disagreeing with challenges to their narrative. Talk about how this has impacted you personally in terms of this uh, this attempt to stifle uh, challenges to the dominant narrative. Well, sure. My personal Twitter has been labeled Russian state-affiliated media. Now, this is not a Twitter that I use for RT. This is my personal Twitter account that me, Caleb Moppin, a guy who lives in Brooklyn, a guy who's from Ohio, who doesn't speak a word of Russian, an Irish-American, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is, you know, my personal Twitter has been labeled Russian state-affiliated media. And that's just like a scarlet letter. It's there to say, don't believe anything this guy says because he's Russian state-affiliated media. Well, I, myself, my soul is not Russian state-affiliated media. I may work at RT, I may be doing interviews on Sputnik Radio, but I, myself, you know, my personal Twitter account, when I, you know, p pick, tweet out a picture of me and my wife going to dinner, 
uh, that's not Russian state-affiliated media. No one in Russia tells me what to put on my on my social media. So that's particularly frustrating. On top of that, I've been personally banned from PayPal. And Matt Taibbi has written about this, and Kim Iverson of The Hill, and a number of outlets have come forward and done stories on how I was personally banned from using PayPal. Why? Uh, well, I mean, we don't really know. They didn't give a reason, but it was on the same day that Mint Press got banned. Two days later, they banned Consortium News. Um, and there's been some other progressive journalists, journalist Alan McLeod, uh, you know, he's been targeted. Um, and there's just been, you know, a coordinated effort to make it harder for me to do the work that I do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and again, is this all just random? No, I mean, it comes from the top. I mean, this is part of the efforts to crack down on uh, dissent. So, uh, you know, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, I've been doing this for years. And that's one of the other slurs that they throw out there is, oh, these people, they're just being paid. It's like, no. Uh, people remember me back from my college days, how I was defending Robert Mugabe and how I, you know, I was very, very opposed uh, to the Iraq war. I was very, very opposed to the Save Darfur mobilization to send troops to Africa on my college campus. I, you know, I, I worked for Ramsey Clark before I'd ever appeared on RT, before I'd ever appeared with Press TV or Sputnik or anything. I was working with former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark, a uh, brave anti-imperialist, uh, and I was part of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And so, uh, you know, I mean, I've been doing this my whole life. I'm going to keep doing it. Um, they're going to make it harder for me to do it. They're going to make it harder for me to, uh, you know, to promote my work out there in social media. They're going to make it harder for me to, you know, get donations from people who might be sympathetic. But I'm going to keep going. And I know there's many people who will. There's a long tradition of patriotic anti-imperialism in this country, from Eugene Debs to, uh, you know, to uh, A.J. Musty and, and A. Philip Randolph, Paul Robeson, so many others. So there you go. And this in a country that has a First Amendment protecting freedom of speech and allowing one to uh, 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 um, protest the government for redress of grievances. But somehow in the midst of there's no space there in that First Amendment. And, and let me read this to you. Kendallanian is a guy who works for NBC News. He does their national security stuff. He's on MSNBC all the time. He's writing articles on uh, NBC News online. And let me read this from Politico. Kendallanian routinely sent drafts of his stories to and closely worked with members of the CIA press office prior to publication while he was a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. According to documents attained, uh, obtained through a FOIA submitted to the Freedom of Information Act request submitted to the Intercept, the CIA at some points managed to convince Delanian, and I'm sure it wasn't hard, to make changes in stories. Here's the thing. This guy worked directly with the CIA. If you look at his Twitter page, there's nothing that says um, U.S. state media, U.S. state intelligence. There's nothing there. You would think that his background is pristine. But yet Caleb Maupin can't have a peaceful opportunity to express his personal views without this. Uh, what they, you, you might as well consider some form of a scarlet letter on his Twitter account, Caleb. Well, let me add before you respond, Caleb, not only are they your personal views, they are incredibly well-researched and documented and personal. And I doubt if they were um, passed through the CIA press office first, like Kendallanian. Caleb. Caleb Mark. Indeed. Indeed. And there's a long history of this. I mean, that's what a lot of the folks who've done revelations about the CIA, uh, they talk about how they cultivate reporters, how they feed information to people. So, you know, I mean, this this whole label of state-affiliated media, you know, if it's from, if it's from an anti-imperialist country, it's state propaganda. But if it's NBC, Fox, or CBS News, it's just, you know, that's just, just the free press just giving you their viewpoint. I mean, it's pretty ridiculous 
uh, when it really gets down to it. But it requires people to do a little digging. It's not on the surface level. It might seem to make sense. But the more you dig into the actual facts, the more it makes sense uh, that uh, the U.S. mainstream media is very much state affiliated. And alternative media is held to much higher standards, you know, because we're constantly accused of being propaganda. We're constantly being accused of being disinformation. We have to do our homework. We have to do our research. We have to document and prove everything we say. Uh, we don't get away with a mistake. If we make a mistake, it's going to be, you know, all over, all over in our faces. So we're actually held to a higher standard. And I would say the outlets in the United States that are labeled state-affiliated media from Russia or China or Iran or whatever, uh, they tend to have, a, you know, a, a more... Uh, a more accurate uh, reporting record uh, because they're held to such standard because everything they say is scrutinized. NATO may have provoked Russia over Ukraine. This is according to the Pope. Pope Francis has said that NATO's eastward expansion may have provoked Russian President Putin into launching an attack against Ukraine. Your thoughts Caleb Mopp, and I wonder if Pope Francis's Twitter account or maybe his Facebook page might be taken down because now the Pope is challenging the, the U.S. narrative. Well, this fits in with that other story we talked about, about Boris Johnson. And it's not so much that Boris Johnson, and it was revealed that Boris Johnson was, uh, you know, that he was, he was trying to stop uh, peace from being negotiated in Ukraine. But it's the fact that, uh, that it appears that that has gotten into the public uh, because there are probably a lot of voices and figures within Europe, in particular France and Germany and Italy, uh, who want there to be peace negotiated. And they're kind of, they're, they're willing to expose, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's role there. Uh, the Catholic Church in the Vatican tends to go with the European capital, uh, on the European mainland. What the French and German and Italian and Spanish capitalists, uh, what they want uh, it tends to be that's the prevailing view. And when they're getting close to the United States, the Vatican gets close to the United States. When they're drifting away from the United States, like in the 1980s, uh, you know, you know, they, they, they you know, tend to drift away from the United States. Uh, and the Vatican tends to follow that. And the fact that the Vatican is now, you know, changing the script and saying, well, actually, the United States and, and NATO kind of provoked this, that shows that, uh, that on the European mainland, uh, there is a little bit of a division developing. Um, and it's also worth noting that while there are a lot of Catholics in Britain, you know, uh, that, that the British establishment and the Vatican have a longstanding vendetta against each other. Um, and that, that is a longstanding difference. You know, that the, the British elites uh, and the Vatican don't like each other. And that, uh, that, you know, the British in their efforts to dominate and, you know, have domination over the European mainland, uh, have often angered the Vatican and vice versa. And, you know, you can go back to the 1800s when the Pope was, you know, speaking out against uh, alleged Masonic conspiracies against the Vatican and against the Church. Uh, you can go back to when, you know, in Britain, you know, had Oliver Cromwell. And, you know, there's a long history of these. These are two centers of power, the Vatican and the city of London, that don't get along with each other and have been rivals uh, in Europe for a long time. And to your point about the, the schism or the it's reported today, RT reports, Hungary likens ban on Russian oil to nuke strike. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has criticized a plan to phase out Russian oil imports, which has been proposed by the EU, saying that such an embargo would be tantamount to, quote, dropping a nuclear bomb, end quote, on his country's economy. So not all of the EU is behind the U.S. move. Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure thing. Folks, you are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. 
Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Lula criticizes world leaders for not doing enough to help create peace in Ukraine. Quote, if you want peace, you have to have patience. I think dialogue only works when it's taken seriously. These are wise words from a wise man. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq. Nicholas Davies, as always, Nick, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Brazilian presidential frontrunner Luis Inácio Lula da Silva argued in an interview published this past Wednesday that world leaders, including U.S. President Joe Biden, are not doing nearly enough to help secure a peaceful resolution to Russia's intervention in Ukraine. He says, I don't think anyone is trying to help create peace. Your thoughts, Nicholas Davies? Yeah, well, no, he Lula is absolutely right. Um, the, the U.S. and U.K., are doing absolutely nothing to um, to uh, uh, support diplomacy in uh, over Ukraine. In fact, they're doing the exact opposite. Uh, Ukrainian pro-Western media are reporting that um, the Russia and Ukraine were close to uh, a, a really a complete, comprehensive peace agreement. Um, in sometime at the beginning of April, and literally the the the, the response from this uh, um, you know axis of war in the West was for Boris Johnson to leap onto his plane and fly straight to Kiev, and um, you know basically tell Zelensky, no, you're not making peace. You know where you're going to defeat. You know. Putin's a war criminal. You mustn't speak to him, um, you know, and we're going to support you to defeat Russia. In fact, hang on, hang on, hang on a second, Nick. Let me jump in real quick so that people don't think that you're just making stuff up because Common Dreams reports today, Boris Johnson pressured Zelensky to ditch peace talks with Russia. The British government has become an obstacle to peace in Ukraine, said the Stop the War Coalition. The conflict there is developing into a proxy war between Russia and NATO, and it is the Ukrainian people who will suffer. Jake Johnson reported that. I just wanted folks to know, Nick, that you weren't just pulling stuff out of thin air. Go ahead. <laughs> Good. Okay. I'm glad Common Dreams picked that up um, because I just I just heard it, uh, you know, from from someone else uh, translating, presumably from from uh, Ukrainian. Um, but yeah, no, and if you, we, you just have to listen to Biden and to his, um, his parrots in the U.S. corporate media. Um, they're not even, they're not even discussing peace or diplomacy. They, you know, they're basically rallying the American population behind, uh, you know, this absolutely brutal idea that, uh, that the U.S. is going to send something like $30 billion worth of heavy weapons 
to Ukraine, and then Ukraine is going to slug it out with the Russian military while uh, the, while the Ukrainian's country is destroyed underneath them. And I, I mean, this is this is. Uh, <sighs> You know, I, I, don't, I don't know how to express the outrage that we all should feel about this. I mean, this is, this is, this is, you know, this is sort of Hitler and Mussolini stuff, basically, saying that, you know, that completely giving up on any idea of peace and saying um, that, the, the, you know, the Ukraine should just fight on for as long as it takes to defeat Russia. Um, and... If, if anyone thinks that, that 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 could happen within, you know, within a short space of time, then they're completely delusional. You know, this this will this will lead to a long, a prolonged war um, that will that will only get worse as it continues. Um, so, you know, right, I mean, Lula is showing the kind of leadership. That, that we should expect from our own leaders, um, and and really the the kind of leadership that that Biden promised in his camp in his election campaign, and and um, you know in the Democratic platform in in, in the election when he was elected in 2020, and uh, you know the, he he promised a new era of American diplomacy, um, you know he he. And that really talked about, you know, military action no no longer being, you know, the 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 main thrust of U.S. foreign policy, and that that would be replaced with a new era of diplomacy. And you know what we have got from Biden is the absolute opposite of that. Even even Donald Trump is is out there calling for diplomacy. And a ceasefire and peace in Ukraine, and which is just you know just excruciating when you know we know that in fact it was Trump who who broke with Obama's policy of not sending lethal aid or weapons to Ukraine. It was Trump who got in the uh, Zelensky's ear when he was elected in 2019, and. Um, you know, basically uh, turned Zelensky from a a supposed peace candidate who was who was in all his campaign rhetoric was conciliatory towards the people of Donbass and and conciliatory towards people in Ukraine speaking Russian and and then once he got in power he he really I, I mean he really turned into an American puppet refusing to fulfill the terms of the Minsk II agreement, um, which needed to be negotiated and, and followed through on with the leaders of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. And he started referring to those leaders publicly as terrorists and saying, you know, you would not talk to terrorists. So, you know, the, a lot of that is down to the Trump administration. Um, and yet now uh, we have Trump outflanking Biden 
as the champion of peace to the American people. You know, Nick, I, 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 I want to jump to another story, but first, a, a comment on that on this. And I will say this, because the Pope, a number of people have said that, you know, the U.S. and NATO aren't doing enough to, you know, to, to bring peace. Here's what I'd say to me. That's like saying the Boston Strangler is not doing enough to stop strangula- strangulation murders. He's the one that does the strangulation murders. He ain't trying to stop them. So the reality is, no, the country that invaded Libya, bombed Serbia, I mean, on and on and on, they're not doing enough to bring peace because they're the ones that created the war and peace ain't what they do. War is their business and business is good. And and to that point, Garland, and and to Nick's point about the Biden administration and Trump, uh, you've got Anthony Blinken, who was supposed to give a speech about U.S.-China policy yesterday. And and because of COVID, (laughs) he wasn't able to. But the summation of of the whole presentation is, they're carrying on Trump policy. Biden told us we were going to get a different policy. Biden's policy towards China is Trump's policy towards China. Speaking of that, of U.S. absurd U.S. foreign policies, uh, Caracas, May 3rd, 2022. U.S. no longer refers to Guaido as interim president. The United States Secretary of State Anthony Blinken stated via his Twitter account that he spoke with former Deputy Juan Guaido and reiterated the U.S. regime's support for the Venezuelan people fight for democracy. In this case, a euphemism for the overthrow of the elected uh, uh, president. But he didn't say the guy who they brought to the State of the Union address, Nancy Pelosi and everybody clapped for the president of Venezuela, puppet Guaido. And uh, now they've finally decided that he's just another schmuck. Uh, Your thoughts on the the absurdity to me, the absurdity that this displays of the United States foreign policy. Yeah, well, I tell you what, uh, Biden is better than Trump at one thing, and that is at dividing the world. <laughs> and that's quite something, because, because Trump is quite well known for being good at dividing people. But, I mean, <laughs> the, and, and Latin America is a good example of this, because, you know, after... Um, I, you know, we've had four or five elections down there in the last year or two, you know, that have elected uh, one, you know, the the new wave of the pink tide. In other words, leftist governments in several countries in Latin America, that's Honduras, Chile, Peru, uh, Argentina, and um, and now hopefully hopefully Lula in Brazil later this year. Um, uh, and, you know, we when we look at U.S. foreign policy around the world, the entire, the entire operation is about um, pressuring and, and seducing countries to join in these, these, these alliances. I mean, in, in, in Europe, we have NATO, of course, Colombia is now being welcomed as a sort of honorary member of NATO, um, as NATO sort of somehow manages to trans, tries to transform itself into a global organization. Um, but of course, you know, the leading candidate for the election in Colombia is also a leftist who, 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 who hopefully would, would, um, you know, change that policy. Um, 
so so this is you know this is just so so disappointing to to anybody you know we 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 we've had endless disappointment disappointment from Biden on the domestic front you know what began as a, a you know six what was it six trillion dollars to be invested in in a, a new social contract in the U.S. to do all the really to adopt um, you know a great deal of of the the popular Bernie Sanders agenda for Medicare for all, um, free college tuition, and uh, you know the really the rebuilding of a of a social safety net in the United States and and shared prosperity, taxing taxing the rich. Imagine that in America. You know, in fact, America did tax the rich for, for many, many years. Uh, you know, in the ni- from starting from the 1930s to the through the Second World War and all the way up to you know the 1970s. This this all um, and and that funded some of the some of the most substantial progress for for working people in in America and and um you know there was such high hopes that Biden in spite of being the the, the sort of right wing democrat candidate had actually got the message and realized he needed to do some of that and instead you know the democrats have just have just completely caved on all of it and and the foreign policy um and uh, you know more money for the military, more money for war, more money for military aid to, to so-called U.S. allies around the world. You know, uh, any of which the United States is ready to to sacrifice and see destroyed in a war. Um, you know, funded and backed by the U.S. Um, it's this is this is just um, you know if the Democrats end up losing. This election, this, this losing both houses of Congress, you know, they will really only have themselves to thank for it. And here's an example, of, a very clear example of what you're speaking to on the foreign policy front, <clears throat> and that is Blinken tweets, I spoke with Guaido to reiterate U.S. support for the Venezuelan people as they seek to restore freedom, democracy, and prosperity. Well, I think if you poll the people of Venezuela, they would tell you they are free in, until the United States decides it wants to intervene in their politics. Uh, I believe that the Venezuelan people would tell you that they are a, a clear example of the democratic process. In fact, Jimmy Carter, former U.S. president and election observer, has said repeatedly that their elections are are free and fair. In fact, he wishes the United States elections were as free and fair as those in Venezuela. And return Venezuela to prosperity, I think their economy is about to is projected to grow this year at 20%. And the United States wishes it, it had anything close to 20% growth. And that's still in the in the clutch of U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. Right, and 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 of course, um, Russia is supposed to be terrified of of the U.S. Uh, imposing similar sanctions on it. You know, of course, of course, none of that has really 
happened so far, you know, in terms of these these maximum pressure sanctions on Russia, because, um, you know, the U.S. is still importing the things it needs from Russia. Europe is still importing oil and gas from Russia. And um, and in fact, Ukraine, in the midst of all this, is is still um, is still also importing gas from and, and oil from Russia, not just for itself, but it is actually all this natural gas that comes from Russia to Europe. A great deal of it flows right through Ukraine, and it seems that. You know, neither side wants to cut that off, even as Mr. Zelensky is, you know, willing to see hundreds of his people killed every day in this brutal war. Um, He, too, is still quite happy to be, um, you know, to be uh, running billions of dollars worth of Russian gas through the pipelines through Ukraine from Russia to Western Europe. So, I mean, this, this, this is all just the most cynical, cynical um, exercise in, um, you know, propaganda, manipulation, um, you know, war, warmongering, war propaganda. Um, and, you know, there are going to be big demonstrations across the United States tomorrow, May the 7th, um, saying, you know, peace in Ukraine. Yes, you know, no to, to the Russian invasion, but we need peace and diplomacy now. No to NATO, no more weapon sales, and and um, we need diplomacy now. If I could get a brief comment on uh, Victoria Nuland, the coup master of all coup masters, paying a visit to Brazil, that is an ominous sign for democracy in Brazil. We- yeah, that's a very ominous sign um, because uh, Bolsonaro could Bolsonaro could actually uh, do what Trump tried to do, except he'd be doing it with the full support of the United States government under Biden. So, I mean, this this the the, the contradictions of of U.S. foreign policy are just becoming so clear to the whole world, which is why most of the world is not imposing sanctions on Russia. Most of the world is not lining up in this division, this new iron curtain that the United States is building um, across Europe and trying to build across the world. Nicholas Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. I'll be back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leanne. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Blinken to unveil, no surprises, China strategy, pre-Asia push. 
Biden's strategy is Trump plus with sophistication, one expert says. Blinken has been diagnosed with COVID, so he did not deliver uh, his uh, China speech that he was supposed to deliver yesterday at George Washington University. But let's examine this issue anyway with our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So the anticipated speech was supposed to kick off a month of intense administration engagement with Asia, including next week's U.S.-Asian Special Summit in Washington, Biden's trip to South Korea and Japan, and the first in-person meeting taking place on the 24th of May of leaders of Quad, including Japan, India, and Australia. Uh, Again, due to COVID, uh, Blinken did not give the speech. But the summation has been that this is really Trump administration policy with sophistication. Now, what that means, maybe you can explain, K.J. No. But when people went to the polls last year, they thought they were going to get a turn away from Trumpian policy. Now they have Joe Biden doubling down on it. KJ, no. Well, Joe Biden has doubled down on everything Trumpian. It's just being rebranded or repackaged. But, um, you know, in terms of immigration, in terms of, I don't know, student debt, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of trade policy, and certainly in terms of China policy, there has been no discernible difference. If anything, things have gotten worse and more extreme. And in the specific case of China policy, the reason why Biden is continuing Trump's policy on China is because Trump was continuing Obama's policy on China, which Biden helped draft and create. Uh, This is essentially Kurt Campbell's policy, the Asia pivot, which they started to put into place since 2008, uh, 2007, and then was was formally, um, you know, announced to the world in 2011. The China policy of Kurt Campbell and this administration is to contain China to take it down because the U.S. will not tolerate a peer competitor. It wants global domination, and China is a threat to U.S. global domination. It has to be taken down by any means necessary, including financial, economic, uh, trade, tech, uh, academic, cultural, information, lawfare, etc. So it is a continuation, and we see that the Biden administration is better at the, you know, the kind of alliance building, for lack of a better word. Uh, I would call it, you know, quizzling uh, leading. But uh, they're better at that and they're better at the PR. They're not, uh, they shoot less from the hip. And so it sounds better, looks better, but it's essentially the same policy. Specifically, what Blinken will do, um, I mean, we know that he had this, um, you know, he got sick with uh, COVID, which in and of itself is an incredible statement because he got COVID by attending without wearing a mask, a known anticipated super spreader event. Uh, that gives us a sense of the risk taking hubris that informs this administration's, uh, you know, uh, uh, worldview and policy in general. But we think that, you know, he will uh, uh, increase everything. He will turn up the heat on everything. There'll be more arms to, certainly to Ukraine, more arms to Taiwan, more interactions with Taiwan, more THAAD missiles to South Korea, 
um, you know, they will work harder to remilitarize Japan, use it as a trilateral uh, alignment with Korea, Japan, and the U.S. against China. They will certainly, in my opinion, attempt to equate China and Russia, bind them together as, uh, you know, the, the great existential threats. And, you know, to put it in a nutshell, they will be adding more oil to the fire. The other thing, KJ, is in looking at this, we now see the, I mean, absurdity of the U.S.'s attempt to maintain hegemony when the turn has already been made from a unipolar to a multipolar world, that they're behind the curve trying to hang on and, and stop it. And here's what I mean. Here's to me where it is most blatantly obvious. Economically, they launch this economic war against China and they are obliterating the um, the the EU economy. And, and, and we haven't even gotten into wiping them out with refugees, which always happens when they destabilize a country. This time they're actually destabilizing Europe itself. But when we see the results of the empire starting to come home and obliterate the economy of the um of the empire, time ain't on their side. I think they have months in Europe. At most, they've got months before the co- their co- the coalition of the empire in, in Europe starts to fall apart. Your thoughts? I think it's already starting to happen. And we see that, you know, first in some of the defections by some of the Eastern European states from the U.S. quote-unquote sanctions. But also, I mean, look at England. You know, the Bank of England has predicted that profound economic pain is coming. They will feel with a force that they haven't felt in a generation or more the profound economic pain that comes from higher inflation, higher energy bills, um, not being able to afford your groceries. So, you know, a deep economic downturn is in the cards for the UK, also for many other parts of Europe. Uh, And uh, yes, so they haven't thought about the blowback, Uh, the unipolarity, uh, you know, we're already moving, shifting deeply into this unipolar world. And it's a little bit like that image of, you know, Willie Coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons where he's gone off the cliff, but he hasn't realized (laughs) that yet. Whoever his, his thought feet are still running, <laughs> and then all of like the fog disappears, and he looks down and realizes. Who'd ever thought we'd be talking about Wiley Coyote in international analysis? Uh, well, well played, KJ. No, um, two two things. One, so the United States approach to this just really sounds like when your only tool is a hammer, every problem is a nail. But with the anticipated pain that is on its way to Europe and the pain that is already hitting the United States only to increase, do you have any projections of what the public response to this is going to be? Because the Biden point of this is Putin's price hike, that's not playing anymore as today I spent $70 to fill up my car and didn't put premium gas in it. Yes, yes, absolutely. First, you know, it's ridiculous. Everybody knows that it's not Putin's price hike because these uh, prices were skyrocketing even before Putin did anything. Uh, If anything, you know, they are, um, you know, Biden and uh, Trump's 
price hike, and they could immediately make uh, some of this go away if they reduce tariffs on China, but they don't want to do that. And so, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to dial back? Are they going to, you know, move their pieces backwards? Uh, are they going to, you know, kind of barrel through and pretend that, you know, it's still somebody else's fault? It's not working. You know, um, you know everybody is feeling that pinch. Uh, and for them to pretend otherwise once again speaks to the ways in which they are so deeply out of touch, not simply with the people, but with reality. So, so how, do, how do they deal with, with what I anticipate to be incredible unrest in the respective countries, whether it be Britain or whether it be the United States or Germany? Uh, the folks that are paying more to heat their homes or cool their homes, the people in Germany that are going to lose their jobs because the factories are going to close, and people like Wilmer Leon who just spent $70 a day to put gas in his car, we're not going to be happy. Oh, oh, I got a plan. I think I know, I think I know oh, what okay. they're going to do, KJ. They're going to make sure that the media doesn't film the people in the streets, and then anybody who oh. claims, c- complains on Twitter, the disinformation government's board will throw okay. them off. All right, that's that what an- I'm thinking, KJ. It. I think that's a good plan, that KJ. Definitely. Well, I mean, this is always, uh, you know, this is this is what we know will happen and is happening right now, even as we speak. But of course, there is always the backstop of a militarized police response. And this has been prepared actually over decades uh, since the U.S. made a neoliberal turn. So, you know, if, for example, even in the, you know, peace loving, uh, you know, uh, uh, warm and fuzzy city of Berkeley, they actually have an armored car. So, um, you know, the you know, New York Police Department has a budget larger than the entire army of North Korea. So, yes, uh, there are several different uh, buffers. Uh, the first one will be propaganda and control of the media, control of the narrative. Uh, there will be an intermediate, uh, you know, controlling strata, which will try to, uh, you know, divert and control, uh, you know, popular discontent, uh, largely through, you know, political, pseudo-political activism. And then the final backstop will be um, a militarized response. And that's, you know, a horrible prediction, but, you know, that's—I uh, I fear that that is the case. Um, there's an interesting article—there's uh, uh, a lot of interesting articles about um, China's co- uh, connection to the U.S. economically. And one of the things that I'd, I'd like to ask you, I've been thinking about lately is, you know, China, I, I read that China is starting to do some— uh, a lot of uh, testing of their economy to see what would happen if the U.S. were to try the um, the same type of economic war against them that it's trying against um, that it's trying that it's doing with Russia. And a number of people have talked about, you know, okay, I think that you know the same thing's going to happen in Taiwan as that happened in Ukraine. But you know, I think the dynamics in Taiwan are so much different. It's so um, the economy is so much. Smaller in Taiwan than Taiwan in Taiwan even than Ukraine. The people in Taiwan aren't the people themselves don't hate the Chinese. They are Chinese. the The economy is completely and totally connected to China. It, could you talk about the difference in dynamics between Ukraine and Taiwan and why that creates a, such a potential for a different outcome and how it'll be addressed differently? If you know what I'm getting at. Well, 
Yeah, the key difference between Taiwan and Ukraine is that Ukraine uh, is a sovereign state. Taiwan is a part of China. It's a province of China, and that's recognized by uh, most of the planet. Uh, And so that's the key difference. So any talk of, quote, unquote, China invading Taiwan would be, you know, um, you know, definitionally wrong because you don't invade. A country doesn't invade itself. That said, there are fundamental uh, similarities uh, that we have to note. The key similarity is that red lines are being crossed and that uh, there is a a real and clear security threat that the United States is trying to instigate uh, very, very close, literally at the throat or the belly of China. That is a red line. Uh, and the Chinese have given very, very clear warnings. You know, nobody can say that uh, the West was not warned, just as nobody can say that the Russia did not warn the West over NATO expansion. NATO actually wants to expand into the Pacific. That is to say, it wants to cross over two oceans and, you know, place itself in a place that it has no, uh, you know, no legitimate claim to. Yeah, well, well, it's had, it's had so they've had so much uh, success in in Europe. I can't imagine why they wouldn't want to expand. They're so right, popular. Right. Well, right. Well, you know, ambition is the fool's, uh, you know, prize for failure. Right. So, but uh, you know, the Chinese economy is ten times larger than Russia's, and it is uh, connected to the global supply chain in a way that is completely and totally different from Russia. It is essentially the manufacturing shop floor of the world. Anybody who's taken a COVID vaccine uh, should understand that the only reason why they're able to get that COVID vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, for example, is because those vials came in Chinese manufactured glass uh, uh, vials and that the refrigeration uh, systems, uh, you know, the minus 70, uh, you know, deep refrigeration uh, systems all came from China. Without China, nobody would have gotten uh, a a COVID vaccination. So China is essential to the world economy in ways that this administration is not even beginning to think about. And, um, uh, uh, and, And therefore, you know, anything that you know, wants any, you know, politician that wants to remove strategic ambiguity and escalate with China, provoke China, really uh, needs to have their, you know, their mental health examined. That said, currently what we see with the Biden administration is they do want to escalate with China. The national security strategy, uh, which has been leaked, has said that China is the key enemy that we want to focus on. Uh, You know, we can do a little uh, bloodletting with Russia, pin it down, uh, you know, kind of, you know, uh, you know, disable it so that it can't be an ally of China. But ultimately, the ultimate goal is China. And the only question is, do we do an ambidextrous strategy, what Kurt Campbell referred to as the two theaters strategy? Or do we destroy Russia completely first and then obliterate China, which I refer to as the new land stand strategy, the Victoria Newlands approach, or uh, do we, you know, just uh, get to cut to the chase and focus on China? That's the only thing that seems to be, you know, in the in the cards. And, you know, if we think of this as, um, you know, a, a multi-course meal, it's clear that, you know, the first course is uh, Campbell's 
chicken soup or Campbell's chicken hawk soup. That is, Kurt Campbell, you know, has been uh, simmering this bone broth of hubris since the Asian pivot in order to prepare the U.S. for containment and competition and conflict against China. And we also know that as we proceed along this course, you know, there will be considerable blowback, considerable obstacles. And I really do not get the sense that this administration has given due and uh, careful consideration to what that would look like. Certainly, uh, it would make anything, any engagement uh, that the U.S. has had over the past century uh, look like child's play. There's a piece in Asia Times, What If China and Japan Dump Their U.S. Treasuries? America's top Asian bankers hold a combined $2.4 trillion in U.S. Treasury debt and both have good cause to sell. Your thoughts, KJ, no. Well, you know, the selling part is tricky because, you know, once again, for China, there is blowback. But the fact is that, um, you know, the economy is interconnected. And you cannot create a quagmire for another country without creating a quagmire for yourself. It's just simply not that simple. But that said, China is working on uh, decoupling itself financially from the effects of U.S. Uh, you know, financial warfare against itself, which it expects, which is already happening, but it expects will escalate should they ever come to, uh, to blows. Uh, the simple fact to understand is Chinese are thinking this through. They always think over the long term. Um, you know, the Chinese invented uh, metal coinage. They invented paper money. Uh, they have created currently a cashless society with electronic wallets. And they're looking at central bank, uh, uh, central bank uh, denominated electronic currency. So they're thinking of this in multiple different ways, and it would not surprise me over the years uh, and, and months that they find a way to effectively buffer themselves from some of the risks and dangers of uh, U.S. financial sanctions or financial warfare. And certainly, uh, you know, they're moving uh, along with Russia and the global south in general towards de-dollarization. Those effects, once again, will be, uh, you know, uh, very hard for the United States. If you have this endless credit card that you've used for the past decades taken away, then where will you get your money and how will you pay for your wars? This is a real serious question. You know, I'll, I'll end it up by saying this. I think as the the U.S. and the EU talk about how they're going to cut off, you know, economically cut themselves off from Russia and China, I think one day they're going to wake up and realize that Russia and China has decided to make that move on their own and there ain't going to be coming, no coming back. No, no. we got. Yes, absolutely. This is what happens when you try and encircle somebody else, but you're trying to encircle the entire village, you realize you've just encircled yourself. And that is that will be a rude awakening when it happens. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. And there's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT has a piece, Is the West at War with Disinformation or Dissent? As populism rises in the West, so do crackdowns on narratives that deviate from those of the state. What are we to make of all of this, and how concerned should Americans be about its own government violating the First Amendment to the Constitution? Well, let's talk to our first panelist. Friday, it's panel time. We're going to turn to the organizer with Action for Assange, Steve Poikinen. As always, Steve, welcome back. Thank you, Wilmer. Good to be here. We're joined by a journalist and a reader of Consortium News. He writes at thepolemicist.net. And his latest piece at Consortium News is entitled, A Reader Sounds Off on PayPal's Ban on CN. Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, Steve, we'll start with you. Joe Biden announced on the 27th of April a new disinformation governance board would serve the Department of Homeland Security. It was just the latest turn of the screw on freedom. This time it's an affront to citizens' right to diversity in information. Steve Poikinen, we have a First Amendment but somehow now that seems to have fallen by the wayside. How concerned should Americans be about this? Not only the governance board, but the fact that it's located in the Department of Homeland Security. Well, and that's that's really the, the biggest concern about this, because the Department of Homeland Security are the people who issue our terror alerts. They tell us who is and who is not a terrorist. And now... They have scary poppins up there who's going to tell you what is or isn't reality. And reality is going to change moment by moment because we're operating on the megalomaniacal pig whims of sociopaths. Uh, So, no, this is certainly disconcerting. It, It is. Jim Cavanaugh. And one of the interesting things about Joe Biden putting Scary Poppins in charge of of this uh, disinformation governance board is that when you look at her vitae or her resume, a lot of her background is in creating disinformation, for example, for the Ukrainian government. For the Ukrainian government, uh, I think that's not an accident. I think this is largely related to ginning uh, up war propaganda. Uh, Ukraine, she had disinformation about the Ukrainian government, about the American government, about the Hunter Biden laptop, etc. And it is, you know, you said, uh, someone mentioned, uh, Steve, uh, terrorism. And this is a third leg of a kind of thing that, you know, they, they, they find excuses to censor. Pornography, terrorism, now it's Ukraine, and it's this concept of you have to protect people. It's always protection. We're going to protect you from child pornography or pornography. We're going to protect you from, te- protect you from terrorists. Now we're going to protect you from disinformation. This is the most vague and unspecified and unspecifiable notion that there, what is disinformation? Nobody can really say what that is. They don't necessarily actually mean lies. That's, you know, not necessarily lies. They're protecting you from alternative interpretations of facts and events. And it's really scary, and it's really, it is Orwellian in the exact sense. And what are they going to do? They're going to 
this is the this is the repressive apparatus of the state, the Department of Homeland Security. It's a police agency. It's not the Department of Education, you know. So they're there to pressure and to cajole and to uh, blackmail social media and media platforms into not platforming people who have different opinions and different uh, uh, analyses and interpretations of events. And let me just quickly say, because I know, Garland, you've been put off Facebook. Yeah, I'm out for another 30 days. For the for the last probably 10, 10 years or so, I've been on the Department of Homeland Security watch list. And uh, it, it is, it is, uh, it is a, a, quite a challenge for me to get on an airplane now. And uh, never been able to get redress, never been able to get an answer, never even been able to get an admission from the government that it is that this is, in fact, true, even though I know that it is. And it comes from my shows. And it, it, it that's just another example of this is a slippery slope and we've been sliding down this slope for, for a number of years. There's a lawsuit that's been filed against Biden top officials, uh, Biden and top officials for colluding with big tech to censor speech on Hunter Biden and COVID. Gee, certainly, certainly no uh, merit to that one. <clears throat> two, two, and, and here's what kills me. The, the, the article says two GOP-led states. They've always got to turn it into something to say, oh, that's the Fox people. So if you're a member of this group, you cannot even accept that there may be some merit to that. They always have to start by stratifying the groups. Filed a lawsuit against President Biden, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, Dr. Anthony Fauci, and other top administrations, alleging that they pressured and colluded with big tech social media to censure and suppress information on the Hunter Biden laptop, COVID-19, and of course, other things. Um, let's start with you. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, Steve. Steve, your thoughts on these lawsuits? Oh, sorry. Well, I, I certainly hope that they they achieve standing in whatever court they go to. We know that there was collusion with the tech. They bragged about it. There was a, a, whole, a whole Saturday Night Live cold open where the Biden administration had TikTok influencers to come in. That's right on you. There was report after report after report published from the well leading up to uh, all of the lockdowns about how the federal government was going to be working with social media influencers, but also trusted, respected community leaders, uh, either in, in churches or in places where people went to, to go gather to get them right on uh, what the talking points were. We know for a fact that uh, a ton of different social media platforms cooperated hand in glove with the federal government throughout multiple Senate testimony hearings. So, no, I mean, the, the evidence is everywhere for that. It's inside. And I don't know what to do about it other than to keep doing what we're doing with our shows, which is to self-host, get on different platforms, stay away from the ones that are part of the public-private partnership. Jim, your thoughts? Well, yeah. Look, they made no secret about it. As Steve said, they've been, they called in the, the heads of the uh, major media platforms, Zuckerberg and Dorsey, and they said to them, you got to stop publishing this stuff, you know? And it's people should be aware, it's quite clear that law about this, the court law, the Supreme Court law about this is quite clear. The government is not allowed to do that, to, to use uh, pressure private companies to do the censoring for them. That's When the government does that, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And they've been doing it left and right, literally. And, you know, it, it is hard to see 
that this uh, lawsuit comes from the, you know, the red state governors and it's couched in language, which is that this, you know, the, the Biden, it's about the Biden administration uh, and uh, squelching uh, any kind of dissonance that's, that's not from the left. It's about the left squelching. That's language is actually in the, in the document, I think, you know, squelching dissent. And this is part of America's crazy and silly political discourse when the Democratic Party is something called the left. You know, I saw this meme yesterday. The Democrats are controlled by communists. <laughs> Pictures of George Soros and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. You know, so this is part of silly American political discourse. I saw Brian Stetson the other day by, uh, on, on CNN talking about this and saying, you know, this this is there's a thing that they're just doing this about this disinformation board, and it's a story in Fox World, <laughs> as if again only Fox people are interested in this. So it's become part of the quote unquote left right, which is really Democratic Republican, uh, the partisan culture war in this country, which has nothing to do with the left and right as far as I'm concerned, as a leftist. Uh, but you know, I I hope that these gov- these governors and the attorneys general should have the standing to sue about this under the Constitution. And from what I read about it, I hope they succeed. And what we just talked about just a couple of minutes ago, the lawsuit names Nina Jankowitz, the head of the Department of Homeland Security's new disinformation governance board, which has received severe backlash from both Democratic and Republican lawmakers for limiting free speech. Lawmakers have expressed concern specifically with the appointment of Jankowitz, who promoted the widely discredited Christopher Steele dossier and repeated the narrative that Hunter Biden's laptop was a product of a Russian disinformation campaign. Steve Poikinen. That's ultimately what makes her uniquely qualified for her position. They're they're essentially taking the job of the White House press secretary, which is to create an alternative version of reality to uh to you know assuage all doubt that uh an alternative set of facts exists and to dodge or avoid any questions that come their way and hurl accusations of treason if they're particularly troubling questions um except for they've given the press secretary a badge and they've given the the department itself you know as we've been talking about lives in the home where they get to tell you who is and isn't a terrorist. In uh, in 2021, the DHS issued that domestic uh, extremist breakdown of who is and who isn't a terrorist. It's like 85 or 90 percent of the country. So 85 to 90 percent of the country uh, could be involved in peddling disinformation simply by sharing a, a tweet. This is one of those things where that crazy video that that circulated the scary poppins one she keeps using the phrase information laundering so that means a source outside of the official u.s government source that the u.s government doesn't like giving you information that contradicts their narrative you're now laundering information by publishing it that's all of us that's everything that we do effectively is some form of that 
so we're all on the chopping block here. <laughs> Moving to the, uh, the, the Indo-Pacific, as they call it, we know that one of the arguments early on um, from the U.S. State Department was that Russia has no sphere of influence, that Ukraine was um, an independent country, and independent countries can choose their alliances, and Ukraine is less than one millimeter from Russia. The Solomon Islands is 7,391 miles from the U.S. shores. However, the Solomon Islands are now saying that they've, they've been threatened with invasion by the West over their China security pact. We know that the United States official um, representatives have said that they refuse to comment on whether they will use military action against the Solomon Islands simply for signing a security pact with China that apparently our red line, China, Russia doesn't have a red line, and ours is 7,391 miles from our shores. Start with you, Jim Cavanaugh. Oh, well, it's in our neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> we got a big neighborhood. We got a big neighborhood. <laughs> there ain't no residential district, as you said. <laughs> Which Brian used to say. The, the, <laughs> Jim, they, they might call that is now gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, so... It's crazy. I mean, they're getting to the point now. It's so blatant, the hypocrisy. And that's why they have to tamp down in the the independent media. Do they get questioned on this hypocrisy from the mainstream media? Do they get pushed on it? I mean, the the guy who's the, um, I forget his name now, Sagamore or something, who's the head of the Solomon Islands, you know, the, the, the Australians have said, Australian politicians, we have to send our troops back there because Australia had troops in Solomon Islands. Apparently they can have troops in the Solomon Islands. At some point there was a crisis and they had some Australian troops there, uh, I think for a humanitarian crisis or something. But Australia is explicitly talking about sending military forces back to the Solomon Islands. So again, you know, around the world, the United States runs the world. And that is what this situation in Ukraine is part of. Uh, a war in which to decide whether the United States and its partners, allies, poodles, is going to continue to run the world the way it wants and have the prerogative to intervene militarily anywhere in the world and to blackmail and control economically countries everywhere in the world. So this is, you know, this demonstrates this in such a dramatic and obvious way that it's hard for anybody to argue about it, which is why they don't want this Anybody talking about it? It was not, uh, you know, proved by them. Steve, poking in your thoughts on the silence uh, on the Solomon's Island having the unmitigated goal to violate the red lines and the severe and the sphere of influence of the United States Empire. Are they buying different like, old video games? Has he ruined Mario Kart? Have they put him in front of the 1942 video game? where you have a mission, like you have to take off and attack or defend the Solomon Islands every time that you get in front of the screen. This is nonsense. This is that. Okay, in the first place, this is about Taiwan. This has absolutely nothing to do with Russia and everything to do with Taiwan and everything to do with the U.S. meddling more and more on that side of China and trying to, to uh, I don't know, is it get ourselves into guaranteed uh, <laughs> guaranteed collapse? Um, I, we're 
we're running around the entire world like like a spoiled kid who just got told he was grounded trying to start trouble everywhere. We're trying to start trouble in Pakistan. We're trying to start trouble. You know, we're in trouble in, in Ukraine and Russia, uh, all over Africa. It's it, This is the complete lashing out for whatever we can grab on our way out as the empire go, continues into freefall. It's what it looks like. And there's a piece in the South China Morning Post along the same issue. U.S. plans to counter China, quote, at risk because of allies' reluctance to host missile systems. Washington's strategy to counter China is at serious risk of failure because of the reluctance of its allies in the Indo-Pacific to permanently host missile systems. This is an analysis by, I think it's by the RAND Corporation. Yeah, the RAND Corporation says that domestic political considerations and their economic ties to China meant it was unlikely that any of the five U.S. allies in the region, Australia, Japan, the Philippines, South Korea, and Thailand, would be willing to host ground-based intermediate-range missiles. Jim Cavanaugh. Gee, they don't want to be targets, <laughs> you know? They don't want to be that obviously part of the campaign against China. As Steve was saying, this is about the campaign against China. There's a campaign against Russia in Eurasia and Eastern Europe, and there's a campaign against China. In the, that's the key campaign in the Pacific. And these countries, although they will cooperate with the United States and are cooperating in a lot of ways, the step forward of putting of saying you can put your missiles in our country that are going to attack China, which is going to make our country a prime target of China, uh, maybe not. <laughs> you know, uh, the Eastern European countries haven't been so reluctant. They've done it. So, and that's going to get them in trouble. They've already got them in trouble. So this is what we're facing with. The United States wants to maintain military hegemony around. That's what, after the fall of the Soviet Union, the Pentagon put out a thing saying we cannot allow any power to emerge anywhere in the world that can restrain us, essentially, to prevent us from doing anything we want. And China is certainly that that power in the Pacific region. So, you know, this is what we're into, and people should realize it. And it's extremely dangerous. Steve Poikinen, your thoughts? So uh, we were talking yesterday uh, about a RAND Corporation document being at the, the heart of the destabilizing Russia through Ukraine campaign. And I, you've got to think that Australia and Japan and these other countries are looking at Ukraine right now going, there's no... I would sign up for putting U.S. missiles on their soil, pointing them at a country that is clearly as capable of defending itself and has enough strong economic ties as China or Russia does. It seems to be that being the U.S.'s war buddy was, and I don't blame them at all for being hesitant. Hence, what did Henry Kissinger say? It's it's a problem to be America's uh, enemy, and it's fatal to be an American ally. Go ahead. I'm going to put these two articles together. Uh, one of them is Russian ambassador to U.S. says NATO not taking threat of a nuclear war seriously. The other one is Representative Adam King, 
Kinziger executes a neon vision for Ukraine, and I'm going to call the bill that he has introduced the Human Extinction Bill, in which he uh, advocates for direct military intervention in Ukraine. Many observers argue that it would quickly lead to nuclear exchange and likely the extinction of humankind. Let's start with you. Jim Cavanaugh, your thoughts on that? Extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. This authorization for military force is giving Biden permission to use military force. It's pre-approving pre, pre, uh, that, uh, pre-approval to use military force if the Russians use chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. It's the same thing that happens in Syria. What that is is an invitation uh, for, the, uh, for a false flag by Ukraine, of biological or chemical or nuclear weapons, uh, and then automatically we go to war. And, uh, you know, fortunately, it didn't work that well in Syria because there was a tremendous amount of, you know, when Obama declared that red line, because there was a tremendous amount of resistance against it. People forget that, but there was enormous resistance against it. But now they've built up the political support for this as much as they can. And if we, people, they don't understand this. And, you know, the Russian ambassador is correct. They don't believe that the Russians will do anything they can to prevent themselves from losing in this. And if the United States were to intervene directly and the Russians needed to use nuclear weapons, they would. <laughs> and and uh, it's the danger of nuclear war here is extremely close. It's, I think it's worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis to some extent because the people involved, there's a lot more variables and the people involved in it are a lot stupider. <laughs> and... Uh, the United States still has the notion since the demise of the Soviet Union, in which it was true for 20 or 25 years, that it was the hyperpower. Nobody could do anything against it or would do anything against it. That is not the case anymore. And they've got to stop this illusion of omnipotence. And that's the neocons. And it's very bad and very dangerous. Steve, let me add this. And the sad thing is... In theory, it would Biden would make the decision in practical application. This guy's wandering around, um, shaking hands with nobody, getting uh, dominated by the Easter Bunny. I don't think he knows what the heck he's doing. There would be the Jake Sullivan's. Didn't he claim himself to be a senator yesterday? uh, Yeah, he doesn't even know what he doesn't even know what his job is. But so the sad thing is these maniacal, psychopathic neocons are the ones behind this and they'd be the one making the decisions. Steve Poikinen. Well, and let's not forget that the AUMF and all of the posturing is predicated on Washington's own fabricated version of reality, where Vladimir Putin's intention the entire time has been to reform the Soviet Union, and nothing short of that unification is a victory for Russia. So at any point, the U.S. can come in and spike the football and say, we won. Because the Soviet Union isn't reconstituted. Uh, Jim is correct. All they're doing with this is setting the table for an event that would provoke the United States and NATO into uh, boots-on-the-ground conflict. This is not just reckless or dangerous. It's an offering to the neocon death cult. Ukraine blowback. Uh, U.K. shop prices surge at fast rate in over a decade as households brace for bumpy road ahead. Jim Cavanaugh, not only is this happening in the U.K., it's happening in Germany as the union heads have uh, come together and have told Olaf Scholz uh, this whole thing about Russian gas and the 
and uh, uh, we're not going to take Russian gas is is detrimental to the uh, to the economy. Hungary is saying the same thing. And now we know what we're going through here in the United States. It just cost me $70 to put gas in my car uh, earlier this morning. Uh, how does the not only the United States, but how do the governments in the European Union and the United States, what are they going to do in July when people have just had enough? Oh, some of them will fall. I mean, it's, you know, it, it goes back to what Steve just said. In other words, they have to gin up in people the notion that we've got to protect. We're not protecting Ukraine. You know, we're not, the Russians want to, first of all, they want to take over the whole of Ukraine and, you know, reconstitute the Soviet part as part of the Soviet Union. Then they're going to come and attack Eastern Europe and take Poland and Hungary, et cetera. That's got to be, otherwise people, what's people's interest in, in, in guaranteeing that Ukraine has the right to join NATO? What's people's interest in forcing the Russians to give Crimea back to Ukraine or forcing the Crimean people to come back to Ukraine or forcing the people of the Donbass republics who don't want to be part of the fascist Ukrainian regime to be part of the fascist Ukrainian regime? People in, in Europe or the United States, for that matter, don't really have an interest in that. So they have to create another narrative, another story, which is that really what we're fighting about is, you know, the freedom of the world, that Putin is the new Hitler, he's going to take over everything if we don't stop him here. We're fighting in Ukraine rather than fighting here. That's what they have to, to do. And that's going to dissipate in the face of, I can't, I can't fill up my car, I can't, pay the, I can't have any energy for my house, I can't heat my house. Uh, I can't find a bread that's uh, affordable, et cetera. So when these sanctions <laughs> hit Europe, which they're hitting, and they're going to get worse and worse, a lot of this fantasy narrative that the Americans and NATO are producing is going to be dissolving, which is why they have to control the narrative, why they have to control the voices who are telling you the truth about this. So that's what the situation is, and it's going to get worse. And as you say, it's going to create political crises for the, quickly for these European governments. Uh, also, there's a, uh, here's an article. Poland's resources running dry as Ukrainian refugee crisis continues. Volunteers aren't showing up as frequently. Housing is harder to find. You know, um, Steve, the, the, the untold story here, I think, in the long run that's really going to hurt in Europe is the Ukrainian crisis. They've got refugees all over the place. Some of them might have a propensity towards goose-stepping and yelling Sieg Heil every now and then, that's going to be an issue. But what are your thoughts about the uh, the refugee crisis, which I think years from now will be the big story in the likely event that we survive? Steve? Well, it, it will be, but it'll only be told by people like Vanessa Beely or like Eva Bartlett, who actually go to these places and report on what's happening without uh, a you know, guided tour from the white helmets and their head choppers like the BBC does. Uh, the, we, in fact, we, we had Vanessa on the show yesterday specifically to talk about the Ukrainian refugee crisis and the fact that the White Helmets are opening up branch offices, not just in Ukraine, but in Yemen. Anytime you have a mass amount of refugees, you have human trafficking, you have, it goes from, uh, it goes from black to red market is the way that it was depicted to me. Um, I'm not sure I want to go into specific detail on that, but you can use your use your brains and figure that one out. Um, it, it's uh, I be mean, it's a field day for 
the most nefarious or criminal organizations on the planet. So, of course, it's going to spill over into politics and it's going to create even more uh, situations where you can radicalize a small group of people and they can do a, a huge amount of damage. Steve Poikinen and Jim Cavanaugh, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. We really appreciate your your, uh, flexibility and, and of course, the analysis that you've provided. Have wonderful weekends. We look forward to having you guys back. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Ajamu Baraka published a piece in Black Agenda Report entitled The Poor People's Campaign and the Moral Dilemma of Liberalism. He writes, the demands for justice at home and abroad must not be sacrificed on the altar of what is called pragmatism. The false choices presented by liberalism can undermine the movement altogether. For insight into this, let's turn to our next panel. We're joined by a published book author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist with more than 20 years of journalistic experience, former Washington Post bureau chief and award-winning foreign correspondent on two continents, John Jeter. As always, John, welcome back. It's my pleasure. We're also joined by a political activist, political analyst. Uh, he is the host of the Gary Flowers Show in Richmond, Virginia. Gary Flowers, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you, Dr. Leon. It's been a long time. Glad to uh, accept the invitation. Thank you very much, uh, Gary. So, Ajamu writes, Reverend William Barber may have made a serious moral and ethical error that effectively placed him outside the Kingian framework. In an attempt to make a point about the flawed priorities of the duopoly, Barber wrote in an email to the movement family that despite the political gridlock on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats have acted swiftly to approve historic military aid to Ukraine in the face of such a moral imperative, it would be anathema for either party to ask, how are we going to pay for it? Uh, John Jeter, let me start with you. Uh, The Congressional Black Caucus has been conspicuously silent here. The NAACP has been conspicuously silent here. And we know that when it comes to the moral compass and framework of the United States, in many instances, it has been Uh, the civil and human rights movement that has claimed that center. Where are we, John Jeter? Oh, we're in in the sunken place, as the young people say. Uh, I think mostly as the product of this 50-year effort, more than 50-year effort, to marginalize the most transformative uh, force in American politics, at least since the end of the Civil War, which is the radical black voice. And I think uh, uh, Reverend Barber, whom I respect and I've heard nothing but good things about, I think he represents that failure of the radical black uh, imagination in his statements uh, championing this uh, this war, 
which is only meant to be intended to be a boon to the defense industry and to American defense contractors. There's no moral imperative here. The, the moral imperative would be uh, to uh, uh, dismantle NATO. Why does NATO continue to exist? There's no Soviet Union anymore. So why does NATO continue to exist? So I, you know, I think this is this is where we are after 50 years of basically limiting, narrowing this conversation, excluding the most radical actors. And so we, we come up with these answers, uh, as, as Fred Hampton would have said, these answers that don't answer, these explanations that don't explain, and these conclusions that don't conclude. So we're in a very bad spot. The language fails us right when we need it most. The discussion fails us when our democracy is, is most in need. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how we turn the corner from from here. If I could give a quote for Gary, uh, speaking of radical black activists, Malcolm X said, I came here to make a speech, to tell the truth. And if the truth is un-American, then blame the truth. Don't blame me. <laughs> Malcolm X. And and Absolutely. Gary, and Gary in, in, as, as uh, Reverend Barber talks about in search of a moral imperative, then wants to challenge how you're going to pay for the for the bill. That seems to me as though he's, he's trying to diffuse the pushback before it comes. He's saying he agrees with the effort, but wants to challenge how you're going to pay for it. So he's anticipating people, oh, what are you, soft on Ukraine? What are you, don't like Ukrainians? He's trying to diffuse that argument before he comes, and in my humble opinion on this issue, fails miserably. Well, I think you're right. Uh, as Reverend Jesse Jackson taught us, when you're at a fork in the road, you can ch not choose the fork. Uh, to take up on, on Brother Jeter's point, uh, look no further than two weeks ago. Where did President Biden speak? At Lockheed Martin. Mm -hmm. And so this is a boondoggle for the global industrial, I mean, global uh, military industrial complex. Now, when you look at the radical black voice, I agree that Reverend Barber has failed the test because he's trying to split the baby. He fancies himself after Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but he's not saying anything that approaches what Dr. King said at the Riverside Baptist Church on April 3rd, 1967, when Dr. King knew that everyone would turn against him once he called out the United States as the greatest purveyor of violence on the planet. So in that sense, Reverend Barber you can you, you you can sense that it is not a full movement because it's still the pyramidal uh, structure. It is Reverend Barber and everybody else flowing from him. The new paradigm has to be a village concept, one that is circular, where all people have an equal radiant to the middle, and that is one of the failings of Reverend Barber's movement. And I'm not attacking him personally. I'm just attack. I'm, I'm just I'm pointing out and articulating the flawed structure in said movement. Uh, but back to the uh, military-industrial complex, America is now going to be selling uh, weapons to Ukraine for the foreseeable future. And that has nothing to do with fixing the problems. But let me segue from there. Joe Biden was elected because he said, I'm more electable than Bernie or Senator uh, Warren, and I can fix things. Well... He hasn't fixed anything, and he's not even liked among Democrats. So he's failed. He should be in the shady rest, uh, given a petticoat junction 
uh, uh, scenario. <laughs> and let's not forget, remember what he said, a return to diplomacy. Oh, what he left out of that was that diplomacy at the barrel of a gun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, John, the other thing is this. Looking at this right now, even the Pope the other day came out and said, well, it looks like this was caused by NATO being too, you know, moving up to the door of, of Russia, that there was an unnecessary confrontation, which I think, think is fairly obvious. But at that point, where did the Pope go, Pope go as a man of religion? You need to find a way to peace. The Pope didn't say, hey, good thing you're sending more missiles in there. That ought to fix it. So the other part of it is, regardless, even if you're knowledgeable, unknowledgeable, the position of a man of the cloth or a person of morality, anytime they see a fight on the street, don't stop and say, hey, I want the big guy to win. Say, how can we bring this to a diplomatic close? And I think that is a moral failing here that, um, and, and again, I've met uh, a Reverend Barber before. I think the world of him. I love his poor people's movement. But I think it's a moral failing to see a physical conflict and a man of the cloth not to say the first priority is to bring this thing to a peaceful diplomatic resolution so that the for, not even talking about the soldiers or the, the, the parties that are arguing so that the innocent people on the street don't have to suffer. Your thoughts, John G. Well, in fact, just really quickly, John Garland, to your point about what the Pope said and when when it comes to the weapons, he said this is a money laundering scheme. How about that? He was the Pope was on the, time. The Pope the, on this one, <laughs> the Pope was poping. John Go, Jeter. John Jeter. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, a friend of mine on Facebook who is uh, typically a reliable source sent me uh, a, a a letter, an open letter that uh, Reverend Barber wrote back in February, I think, before the war started. And I'll just read you one sentence from it. Um, it says, "Quote." Could it be that Ukraine is the Edmund Pettus Bridge of today, where everyone could come together in the open and defeat the autocracy's power with their bodies and their courage to build a worldwide moral stance? Well, my, you know, my answer would be yes, but not in the way that you propose, right? I mean, this is, we should be in opposition to this war in Ukraine, but we should also understand that this is completely uh, uh, the creation of NATO and of the uh, global industrial complex, uh, as, as Brother Gary said, right? Uh, and we need to sort of, we need to somehow revamp our political imagination to uh, to come up with the conversation, the language, and the and the solutions to this problem. We just can't seem to do that now, and that's largely because we keep banishing these uh, the most productive ideas, the ideas that say, "Hey, wait a minute," you know, like the Pope, right? Who says, who calls it exactly what it is? And let me just say this very quickly. Um, I, I, you know, I, I keep uh, I'm, I'm pr promoting my book, which I hope will come out in the fall. Uh, and it's about the class war in America over the last uh, 170 years or so. One thing I discovered in writing this book is that the predicate, the predicate for real reform, for real revolution, for real change, for real positive change is calling things by their proper name. When you get people calling things by its proper name, that's when you get changed. So that tells you just how uh, um, how badly we're doing right now in the United States and really in the Western world as a whole. Gary Flowers. I, I totally agree. And, and let's go back to the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When he talked about the three-headed monster in America, it, it was um, materialism, uh, militarism and, and, and militarism and racism the point that I'm making and racism. And so on the militarism, he, he warned against the idolatry of might and that we should say we will study war no more. 
And that is what uh, Reverend Dr. Barber has not done. And so that is a feeling. That is a feeling. So uh, that said, we have to uh, turn another way, and we have to hold Reverend Barber accountable and other leaders who would, you know, take us down the road of splitting the baby. A statement on Ukraine from the Black Liberation Movement. Black Liberation Movement organizations issued a joint statement opposing U.S.-NATO actions in Ukraine. What does this say to you, John Jeter, uh, that now a number of, I want to say about 12 or 13 organizations issued this statement, and again, the NAACP is absent, the Congressional Black Caucus is absent, um, and that to me speaks volumes. Yeah, uh, although it's not surprising at all, um, the Congressional Black Caucus is sort of a, a recent convert to the to the the uh, equivocating moderation of the Democratic Party. The NAACP has been that way since its since its inception uh, in what nineteen oh nine, I believe. And uh, you know, the one one thing that I discovered in researching my book is just how relentless and advocate for anti-communism the NAACP was uh, during uh, the the civil rights movement the Black Power Movement, and before that with the labor organizing of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And so it's not surprising at all. I mean, what what we see, what we know, is that the empire and its um, uh, mostly white male leadership uh, continually sort of peels off layers of the opposition, be it Irish or Italian, be it Jews, be it women. Uh, and, and, and they've succeeded in doing that even with our black misleadership, as the late, great Glenn Ford would say. Uh, and that's what they've done with the NAACP, with the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, and with many other uh, black organizations and black political figures who are uh, basically parroting, aping these uh uh, neoliberal and white supremacist and militarist stances. Uh, but we still do have a black, a radical black political class, right? It's still there. It's just that it's, it has been marginalized. And so we don't get this statement uh, by the Black Alliance for Peace. We don't hear these statements on the mainstream media. It's not in MSNBC. There's no discussion about it on CNN. Uh, but we need to get back to that. We need to sort of we, you know, we really, I've said this before, so uh, if I've said it here uh, in this space, forgive me, but we really needed to exhume Malcolm X and, and, and uh, Fred Hampton and Huey Newton and their ideas and their conversation, which is not to say that the answers lie, the answers to our problems today lie in our past, but they are very much grounded in that discussion that we were having, uh, you know, 50 and 60 years ago that has been aborted by um, uh, uh, the empire uh, in its in its in its late stages of capitalism, Gary Flowers. I think that's spot on, and America has to come to grips with one American exceptionalism around the world. Why do we feel as though we have to, um, in, in in so many words, police everyone? But when you look at 800 military bases around the world, we're not policing or monitoring everyone. <clears throat> we are land grabbing. We are taking people's minerals and their resources. So. It doesn't take a Ph.D. in petroleum science to understand that all of this conflict is about oil. And where the planet is burning up, President Biden is doubling or retreating on his promise to get rid of our dependence on oil and, uh, and to turn to alternative uh, resources in terms of um, energy. That said, 
we're moving in the wrong direction with the wrong people. And in terms of the midterms, I see that, you know, Congressman Clyburn, a good friend of mine, but why is he going down to stump against Cisneros in Texas, who's a progressive? So the Democratic Party at the federal and the state level across the country uh, are not playing to win. They're playing not to lose. And that's going to make all of us lose. Well, just really quickly, Gary, I know the answer to your question about why he's going to campaign against Cisneros, who's a progressive. It's because he's a progressive. (laughs) And and, that's right there. No, and I mean— well, well, because they the, the Democratic Party has created what they call Team Blue, which is a political action committee that is designed to do what? Prevent Democratic progressives from getting seats in the House and, and in the doc- Senate. And, and good doctor, it is the modern day version. It is of the 1988 Democratic Leadership Council. Yep. And this Simple one is out. and this one is being run by what's his name from the 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 congressman Meeks not uh, not not Meeks the congressman from from Queens New York uh, uh, anyway yeah that's Meeks that's Meeks no 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 but it's not Meeks the other one it's not uh, go ahead go yeah, I know what you're Jeffrey? talking about Jeffries, Jeffries yeah Jeffries Hakeem Jeffries go now, ahead, let me, let me right. add this this is because I think this is an important sentence in their statement those military funds sent to Ukraine should be reallocated to the needs of people inside the U S for universal health care universal child care affording house and they go on, right? And here's the point. They just cut the money for COVID. That's gone. Last month, $13.6 billion to uh, Ukraine, supposedly to Ukraine. Of course, we know it's going to Lockheed Martin and Raytheon. This month, $33 billion. That's nearly $50 billion allocated for the weapons manufacturers in Ukraine in two months. Meanwhile, HSBC, you know, uh, historically black colleges are going broke. They promised them all kinds of money. They end up getting nothing. Meanwhile, we have people suffering, getting thrown out of their houses, can't afford a dozen eggs for their children. And we see this. So when I read, and I hate to beat up on him, but when I read that uh, Reverend Barber said, you know, that it's a moral imperative and that we shouldn't ask who's going to pay for it, I think you'd see, you give the room to them when they ask for another $800, $900 billion. You're now giving them the space they need to say, we've got to do these things, and it's a moral imperative as the people at home, particularly people of color, you know, Latinos and African Americans, et cetera, and poor white people, suffer worse and worse. Your thoughts start with you, Gary. Yeah. I mean, uh, no, go ahead, Brother Jeter. Yeah, I, yeah sorry about that. Uh, John Jeter, Jeter, go ahead. Let, let, let me just say very quickly, I, I just, I can't, I couldn't agree with you more, Garland. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the, the, the problems the Democratic Party faces, both parties, but especially the Democratic Party, because they, they claim to represent the working class. But their biggest problem right now is really not Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or James Clyburn. It's the fact that they lack credibility because they're what they are saying does not speak to people's lived experiences. I'm reminded of a joke I used to hear uh, when I worked in, in, in Argentina about um, uh, why Che Guevara, who had the best of intentions and who had uh, 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 the blessings of, of uh, Fidel Castro to go and spread the communist message throughout the Bolivian countryside and that he failed largely because the people were hungry and all he had was, was words and they wanted beans, right? 
and, and there's some truth to that, right? You have to sort of speak to people's lived experiences. The Democratic Party is not doing that at all. They're, they're selling them weapons in Ukraine when people are hungry. And, and even worse, their children are hungry. And so, I mean, we're coming to a real democratic and constitutional crisis, I think, when people want one thing and to continue to get another. We see that with the recent ruling in Roe, or with the imminent ruling, I suppose, in uh, Roe versus Wade. We see that with healthcare. We see that with Ukraine. We see that, oh, we see that with, you know, uh, Joe Biden's, as someone told, as someone described it to me, the Klan rally at, the, at his State of the Union speech when he said, fund the police as opposed to defund the police. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're really reaching a, a, a point where I think um, it, it's a democratic crisis, a crisis of democracy in the United States. And, um, you know, the lack of real conversation about this is pernicious, I think, to say the least. Gary, let me add this to that. As the only, it seems to me that the um, the leadership of our country, both parties, but the Democrats are in power right now, so we'll speak to them, has decoupled from its constituency. They're saying, we got to confront Russia. And people are like, huh? We got to confront China over Taiwan, 7,000 miles from home. Oh, what about the Iranians? Why, we can't let the Iranians get away with things in the Straits of Hormuz or wherever. People don't know where this stuff is. Meanwhile, everyday people with a house full of hungry children can't put food on the table and can't afford gas to go back to work. And it seems like the, the empire now has divorced itself from the needs of the people in the, in the, uh, on the streets. Gary Flowers. Well, let's once again begin with your latest term, empire, which is different from a constitutional republic or the mythical democracy. We sell ordinary people that we live in a democracy. We don't live in a democracy. Democracy percolates up. It does not trickle down from Goldman Sachs and other Fortune 100 corporations. Uh, and the idea that the Democratic Party is off base, they've been off base for a long time. And I've said this before in Dr. Leon's show, our allies around the world have three to five to seven political parties. The fact that we have a duopoly and masquerading as democracy is at least insulting to those of us who call ourselves intelligent. And if we don't move toward a more representative uh, form of government uh, and political party system that represents all of the people, at least a, a greater swath of the people, then the 250 years of America that we will supposedly celebrate in, in, in four years may not even happen. And so we have to look existentially at what is America, for whom and by whom. Right now, it is the plutocrats and the ultra-wealthy that are running this country to the demise and the degradation, degradation of poor people. So when, when you just raise your point that you talk about China and Ukraine and people are like, wait a minute, I need a job. You know, I need health care. And you guys are talking about Ukraine. What does that have to do with me? And so the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are off base. I would love to see the idiots who follow the loser of the last election form their own racist party and let the whatever's left be the Republican Party. I would love to see those who call themselves progressive leave the Democratic Party and form another one and have the fifth party being labor. The Supreme Court 
is ready to strike down Roe v. Wade, according to a leaked draft of the majority opinion shows. A published draft of a Supreme Court opinion that would overturn the right to abortion established in Roe v. Wade has clouded the future and of reproductive rights, disputed the nation's political landscape, and undermined the high court's image. Uh, John Jeter, before we get to actually discussing Roe v. Wade, two things. One, what does it say to you that this was leaked? And wh- how concerned are you about rights, other types of rights that have been based upon a right to privacy that could be following a strike down of Roe v. Wade? Well, to the first question, I suspect, I, I obviously don't know, I don't have conversations with uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, but I suspect that the Supreme Court uh, at its highest level leaked this memo as a trial balloon just to see how uh, deep the anti uh, or the or the pro-abortion sentiment uh, goes in this country. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. I don't again, I don't know this to be the case, but I would not also be surprised uh, to hear that it was uh, to hear at some point in time that it was leaked in coordination with the White House, which, of course, uh, see some salvation in uh, 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 the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, because, of course, they can sell to the Democratic voters, we're going to rush in like the cavalry and save you from these this this uh, right-wing Supreme Court and these Republicans. Uh, I don't think it will work that way, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were thinking that way. Um, uh, as for the, the rights that will be overturned, I, I um, you know, I, <laughs> as a writer, I think of these things in the, in the, in the sort of aggregate, in the big picture, uh, with the sort of a, 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 a panoramic lens as opposed to a zoom lens, I do think that we're looking at that. But but even even bigger, I think, is that it's uh, a signal of this moral panic that we see almost daily in these sort of in the in these incidents of state terrorism against blacks in January sixth. Uh, the whole Donald Trump phenomenon is this moral panic by whites that they are being replaced, that they are being challenged by blacks and to a slightly lesser extent by women. And so Roe versus Wade, very much like George Floyd or, or Michael Brown or any of these other uh, uh, um, terroristic uh, uh, attacks on black Americans, unarmed black Americans typically, are representative of this uh, moral panic, which we know has historic roots. That, that's what 1919 was about, this fear that whites were going to be replaced in the workforce, in the labor force, by blacks. Uh, of course, you know, and again, it speaks to the lack of moral, uh, of, of the lack of a political imagination. Whites, most whites don't say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we should work with the blacks so we all eat. And they don't, and that's the whole point of American culture, right, is to, is to, uh, transform a white identity into that of a scab. That's the whole point, right? That's what that's that's why we have the TV, the television that we have, the the movies, the music. It's all meant to sort of make uh white identity a thing apart. And so uh yeah, you know, we're we're definitely facing this backlash as being ratcheted up by a fearful, mostly uh mostly white, uh mostly male um uh ruling class that fears that uh, things are coming to an end and they might be denuded of their white-skinned and uh, phallic privileges. Gary Flowers. Yes, I, I want to speak to the privacy issue. Just as Brown versus Board of Education did not solely apply to education, 
but had ramifications across uh, the American landscape in terms of disavowing separate but equal uh, outside of education, this road decision, if the leaked draft is actually that of Justice Alito, then it's, it's, it's strikingly dangerous in this sense. Religious schools, well, in the name of religion, then schools will be able to discriminate on a, a higher level. Um, I won't say a higher level, on a, on a more dangerous level. Restaurants could say on religious grounds, I don't want Mexican people in my restaurant. It would be constitutionally in tech. So this decision goes far beyond um, abortion itself. But look, let's look at the paradox just in abortion. Let's, let's count. Nine out of ten human beings are of color. Europeans or white people make up 10% of the world's population, and maybe not even that. So the idea of having white women forcibly have their babies, but at the same time, the Republican Party has no problem putting patches or other sterilization tools in the bodies or on the bodies of black, brown, red, and yellow women. And so it is a colossal doublespeak, to say the least, if it were not so dangerous uh, and so despicably conceived, pun on conceived. And it's also interesting. I, I I don't see. I don't know the data on this, but I I think I'm not too far off to say that a lot of these so-called right to lifers are also pro death penalty. So the, the hypocrisy is nauseating. John Jeter, Gary Flowers, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Really, really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Hey, may I, may I say before I go, my, my one and only goddaughter is graduating from Hampton University this coming Sunday, and I will be there with my blue and white on, and I will, I will wave to the detention hall uh, Dr. Leon, where you spent most of your time. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you, Gary. I'll be down there Sunday as well, picking up my son, who is a sophomore, just finished his sophomore year. With okay, that, well, well, hit me up. We'll hit do. Me up. Thank you. Uh, folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.